I wonder, have you ever had the experience of reaching into the fridge for a nice cold glass of milk, only to take the first step and to discover that the milk has curdled and gone bad? Or maybe to open up that Tupperware container with some of last week's leftovers only to find a blob of green mold that got to it before you did. There are times in life when good things go bad. This morning as we continue along in our study of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see that good things can go bad even inside of the Christian church. Good gifts that God has given for our benefit, for His glory, that become toxic and destructive under the influence of our sin. But nevertheless, things that are good in and of themselves, things are worthy of thanksgiving and praise because they come from God, the giver of every good and perfect gift. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to open it and turn with me once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Last week we introduced the book of 1 Corinthians. We took a brief tour of the city, ancient Greek city of Corinth, in an effort to understand the culture of the city, to get a handle on some of the challenges Paul and the believers were up against in the first few years of this church's existence. We made it to verse 3 last time, and this morning with God's help, we're going to pick up our exposition in verse 4 of the text and work our way down to verse 9, a section of text that's dominated by the theme of thanksgiving. Paul's thanksgiving for the good gifts that God has graciously given to his people in spite of the fact that some of these good gifts have gone bad under the influence, the destructive influence of human sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to reread the first nine verses this morning. I remind you as I read, this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And thanks be to God this morning for His holy and inspired Word. If you missed the sermon last week, I want to encourage you, go to the church website later this afternoon, catch up on that introductory sermon, because the material we covered last time will be a great help as we try to understand this book as a whole, to wrap our mind around the challenges that Paul was facing as he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. To summarize briefly, let me emphasize again this morning, as we did last week, that the church in ancient Corinth was a mess. It was a mess doctrinally. It was a mess ethically. It was a mess morally. It was a mess spiritually. It was a mess in just about every way you can imagine. 
And instead of influencing the pagan Greek culture for the glory of God, the pagan culture of Greece had actually influenced the church. And the values of the unregenerate society had percolated into the church, much to the detriment of the gospel and much to the detriment of their Christian witness in the city. As one commentator put it, the problem wasn't that the church was in Corinth. The problem was that Corinth was in the church. A worldly church living in a morally depraved culture that was strident in its opposition to all things holy, all things righteous, all things godly. And as we observed last time, the culture of ancient Corinth was a culture that in many ways reflects the situation we are living in today here in Canada and the Western world. An individualistic culture where personal autonomy and personal liberty rule supreme. A materialistic culture where cash is king. A hedonistic culture where pleasure is sought at any price. A sexually permissive and perverse culture where almost anything and everything goes. This was the cultural climate of ancient Corinth. It is the cultural climate we're experiencing again today in a society that has largely untethered itself from its biblical, its Christian moorings. And so, friends, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see why the book of 1 Corinthians is so very relevant for the contemporary church in the North American and European context. A church that is confronted with great cultural challenge. A church that has the potential either to compromise the gospel on the altar of relevance or else to stand boldly for the gospel, to stand unashamedly for the truth about Christ, and to see God do great things for His own glory as he has done in every past generation. Well, given the many problems that existed within this Corinthian church, given the deplorable way some of the members had treated their founding pastor, who was also an apostle, we might expect Paul to come out in these introductory verses with both barrels blazing. To sternly and soberly rebuke this stubborn, stiff-necked church to give them exactly what they had coming to them. But as we observed last time, that is not how Paul begins his letter. Rather than immediately laying into these believers for their worldliness, their sinfulness, their disobedience, their rebellion, Paul instead reminds the church of their new identity and their true identity in Christ. They are members of God's church in Corinth. They are those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Paul reminds these struggling Christians of their true identity in Christ. People who have been made holy by the blood of Christ. People who have been washed clean of their sin and united to the Savior. People who have had Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to their account even as their sinfulness was imputed to Christ's account as He hung on the cross and died there for their sins as their substitute. These opening verses, Paul speaks first of all of the Corinthians' exalted position in Christ. He speaks about their true identity in Christ, even though it is very clear that some of these Christians are not living in accordance with that new identity. They are actually contradicting that identity with their attitude and their actions. Now as we move on to verse 4, we see the Apostle Paul continuing on in the same vein, giving thanks for several things that God has done for this church, and that will be the outline of our message this morning. Paul's thanksgiving for God's activity in the life of the church, first of all, in granting the believers His saving grace, secondly, in enriching the church with a variety of spiritual gifts, 
Thirdly, in confirming their salvation both in the past and in the future. And finally, by effectually calling them into fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so we have four activities this morning. God has accomplished in the life of these believers four good gifts that He has given to the church in every generation, even though some of these good gifts are abused and misused as a result of our sin. Well, the first thing that God has done for these Corinthian Christians that is worthy of Paul's thanksgiving and praise is the fact that He has given them grace. Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You know, if there is one thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion, every other ideology in the world, it is this concept of grace. A concept that permeates every page of inspired Scripture and reaches its pinnacle, reaches its ultimate expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Grace is, by definition, God's unmerited favor. It is getting something from God that you don't deserve and that you could never earn on your own. It is being a recipient of God's goodness and kindness, even though we all deserve God's judgment and condemnation because of our sin and our rebellion against Him. And every other religion, every ideology under the sun teaches something that is very different from grace. In fact, something that is the very opposite of grace. Study comparative religion. You will discover quickly every religion other than Christianity is based on a concept that we often refer to as karma. Getting what you deserve. Getting your just desserts, whether good or bad. And so the doctrine of karma says if you're a nice person, if you're a kind person, if you're a generous person, you can expect to be blessed in this life and in the afterlife. But if, on the other hand, you're a mean person and a stingy person and an immoral person, you can expect to receive the short end of the stick. You can expect to be punished either by the impersonal universe or by the particular deity of the religion. Karma is very closely associated to the idea of justice. The idea there is ultimate justice in the universe. You will reap whatever you sow. And even within Christianity, there is a certain place for this kind of thinking because the God of Christianity is a God of perfect justice. But as Bono, the lead singer of U2, said a few years ago in a much-quoted interview, I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my judge. You see, Bono said, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me, karma is at the center of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. Yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap, as you sow stuff. Grace defies logic and reason. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I wouldn't endorse everything that Bono says about Christianity, but I think on the subject of grace, he hit the nail on the head. You see, if God related to us strictly on the basis of His justice, none of us would stand a ghost of a chance because the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fall short of His glorious standard. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that the soul that sins will die. 
And so sinful human beings like you, like me, like the Corinthians, would not stand a chance to be saved if God were to give us what we deserve according to strict justice or karma. We would all, without exception, spend an eternity in hell no matter how hard we tried to earn His love, no matter how hard we tried to earn His approval through our good living and our righteous deeds. When I was a missionary in Montreal, I used to tell our students on campus, trying to earn your way to heaven through good works, through human merit, is a bit like trying to swim across the Atlantic Ocean. You may be the greatest swimmer the world has ever known, you may be a lousy swimmer like I am, but at the end of the day, we will both be dead in the water. Best swimmer in the world might make it out 50 kilometers, 60 kilometers before he drowns in the ocean. A lousy swimmer like me might make it out one or two kilometers before I drown. In the end, we're both dead because the distance is quite simply too far. And that's the way it is with God, friends. If we try to earn his approval and his forgiveness through good works, it is like trying to swim across the ocean. You may do more good works than me, relatively speaking. You may be a kinder, a nicer person than I am, but in the end, it will not matter one iota because the moral distance between sinful humanity and a holy God is too far. And if you want to reach that holy God through your own righteous deeds and your own religious devotion, you will need to be perfect. You will need to do it flawlessly. Because that is what God's justice demands. But the truth is that none of us here today are perfect. At least I'm not. And what that means is that we've got a massive problem when it comes to our relationship with God. And if you try to swim your way to heaven through good deeds and righteous living, the truth is that you will drown in your sins long before you make it. No, friends, if you want to cross the Atlantic Ocean, it is not going to happen by swimming. You're going to need a boat to bring you across. And in the spiritual realm, God has provided a boat to bring us safely through the waters of His judgment, and that rescue boat is none other than Jesus Christ. He's the ark that God has provided to bring His people safely into His holy presence by grace alone, through faith alone. And so we find at the very center of the Christian faith this concept of grace. We have grace at the center. The unmerited favor of God which has been freely given in Christ Jesus. You may say in response to this, well, what do we do then with God's justice? I thought God was perfectly just by definition. If that's true, how can He possibly set aside His justice in order to let the guilty walk away free? That's a good question. And it's got a good answer. And the answer to that question, friends, is that God's justice has not been set aside. God's justice has been satisfied on behalf of each and every believer. The reason that Jesus Christ came into the world and went to the cross of Calvary was to satisfy the justice of God against our sins and to pay the death penalty that you and I deserve to pay. You and I deserve to go to hell for our sins, but in His infinite love and mercy, Jesus experienced hell on the cross as the Father turned His face away and punished His Son in place of me, in place of every other Christian who has ever lived and who ever will live. Jesus died there on the cross in the place of His church, giving His life for His own bride, bearing our sin and our guilt in His own body on the tree so that we who believe might go free and might live eternally with Him. 
This is what the Apostle Paul is saying when he speaks in verse 4 about the grace of God given you in Christ Jesus. That's why he loves to begin all of his letters with that familiar phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same glorious truth we find in Ephesians 2, that by grace are you saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. God had richly poured out His grace on these Corinthians. He had saved them through the sacrifice of His Son. But as we're going to see in weeks and months to come, the sinful behavior of this church was cheapening the grace of God, and it appears that some of the Corinthians were presuming on God's grace. They were using God's grace as an excuse to persist in their sin with the attitude they can sin now and seek forgiveness later. And truth be told, sometimes you and I do exactly the same thing when it comes to the grace of God. God's grace is a wonderful gift. God's grace goes beyond all comparison. It is a matchless, priceless treasure, but yet it is a gift from God that is sometimes abused in a way that destroys our Christian witness, dishonors the Lord, and in some cases even calls into question whether we've truly come to know the Lord in a saving way or whether we are just going through the outward motions of religion without having the Holy Spirit living in our hearts, giving us the power and the will to do the things that are pleasing and honoring to God. Now the Apostle Paul is going to revisit this subject, the subject of the cheapening, the abuse of God's grace later on. But here in the opening verses of chapter 1, his goal is not to rebuke them, but to remind them of who they truly are in Jesus Christ. To remind them of their identity as those men and women who have received God's unmerited favor. First divine activity that Paul thanks God for in these verses is the grace that has been lavished on the undeserving. But now secondly, in verse 5, the apostle give thanks for something else that God has done for His church through Jesus Christ, namely, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and in all knowledge. The grace of God saves us from the consequences of our sin. But that same grace given through Jesus is meant to equip us for service in the kingdom. And that's what Paul is speaking about here in verse 5. The gracious activity of God in granting spiritual gifts to the church so that the church can be built up in love, so the church can be equipped to reach out to others with the good news of Jesus Christ. It's no coincidence that here in verse 5 of the text, the Apostle Paul singles out two specific categories of gifts. Gifts of speech and gifts of knowledge. Because these were the very things that were most prized, most sought after in Greek culture and in the Corinthian church. The ancient Greek world, you may be aware, one of the most prized abilities was the capacity for public speaking. The ability to argue persuasively. The ability to be eloquent in rhetoric. There's a great philosopher, Aristotle, who wrote what is still considered today the definitive manual on rhetoric and public speaking, a treatise I studied in graduate school, a document that was for centuries a standard part of Western classical education. And Aristotle's shadow looms large over Corinth and Greece. Greece, and this was part of their heritage. It was part of the culture that the Greeks were proud of. They prized eloquence. They prized public speaking, oratory person who was schooled in rhetoric. Now a little later on in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see one of the main complaints that Paul's opponents brought against him was the fact that he was not a very eloquent man, that he was not very gifted in public speaking. 
At least he wasn't gifted by the standards of Aristotle and the ancient Greeks. When Paul went into the city of Athens just before he came to Corinth, he preached the gospel to the city council up on the Areopagus and he was ridiculed by these intellectual elites. He was written off by some of them as a simpleton, an intellectual lightweight who had nothing of significance to say and who really wasn't worth listening to. That's why in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul tells the Corinthians when he first came to them, he came in weakness and fear and much trembling that his speech and his message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. See, Paul fully realized that he did not measure up to the Greek standards of rhetoric and public speaking, that many people in that culture viewed him with disdain, saw him as an ignorant and uneducated man. As we're going to see in chapter 2, Paul embraced this weakness. He joyfully embraced it. And he taught the Corinthians that God delights to use the foolish and the weak things of the world to confound the wise. Well, those two words we find there in verse 5, speech and knowledge would have deeply resonated with the ancient Greek culture. But inside of the church, Paul is using those same two Greek words, the word logos and the word gnosis, to refer to specific spiritual gifts. Gifts that had been given to them by the Holy Spirit for the edification and the building up of the church body. And according to Paul's personal testimony, the church in Corinth was not lacking in these things. In fact, Paul is going to emphasize the same point about the gifts again in 2 Corinthians 8-7, stating that the Corinthian church excelled in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness. When Paul says here in verse 5, the believers had been enriched in all speech, he's referring first of all to the spiritual gifts described later on in chapters 12 to 14, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. I'm not going to try and unpack exactly what those gifts are this morning. It's a complex subject and we're going to deal with that subject soon enough in our course of study through this book. But one thing you need to understand at the outset is that these gifts of speech the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, were being terribly abused and misused within the Corinthian church. And rather than fulfilling their proper function in God's design for the church, the abuse of these gifts was actually tearing the church to pieces. It was creating tremendous tension, tremendous disunity among the believers. It wouldn't surprise me in the least if some of you here today have been in church settings, church contexts, where you've seen firsthand just how destructive the misuse of tongues and prophecy can be, even in our own modern times. This is another example of how a good gift from God can go bad as a result of the influence of sin. But for now, Paul is not rebuking the church for the way the gifts are being misused. Rather, he is thanking God for the gifts themselves, because these gifts in and of themselves are good and desirable, and beneficial for the church. Well, according to the Apostle Paul, the Corinthians were enriched in these gifts of speech, and he also says that they were enriched in gifts of knowledge, referring in this context to a different grouping of spiritual gifts, such as the ability to interpret tongues, and the ability to discern and weigh prophecies. As Paul is going to emphasize later on in this letter, if one member of the church gets up and speaks in tongues, there must be another member there who is able to interpret the tongue and to explain what is being said. Otherwise, 
it will descend into total chaos and disorder and nobody in the church will be edified and beyond that the non-believers present will think that you've gone insane. And if somebody in the church is to stand up and give a word of prophecy or a word of knowledge, there must be others in the church who can weigh the prophecy, determine whether it is truly a word that comes from God that is consistent with the clear teaching of the word of God. You see, friends, knowledge gifts and speech gifts work together in the church. They're meant to complement one another. That's why Paul refers to them side by side in verse 5, again in 2 Corinthians 8-7. These are gifts that are meant to operate in tandem. Gifts of speech and gifts of knowledge. What I find very interesting about this ancient church in Corinth is that some of their greatest areas of strength were also some of their greatest areas of weakness and of failure especially in the way these gifts were being used in practice. And already here in verse, the first nine verses of chapter 1, Paul is hinting at the many problems he is going to deal with in the course of the letter. He alludes to the fact that his apostolic authority is being undermined by false teachers, that the saints are acting like worldly sinners. He alludes to the fact that the grace of God is being cheapened, that the gifts of the Spirit are being abused. Almost everything that Paul says in these introductory verses by way of thanksgiving anticipates a problem that needs to be addressed by the Apostle and corrected later on. Once again, here at the outset, we must recognize Paul is determined to give thanks for what God has done, to give thanks for what God has established, to give thanks for what God has accomplished through His grace and for His own glory. God has given the Corinthians everything they need to accomplish their mission. He's given them everything they need to be a light for Christ in their city. They have everything they need to be a community of faith that glorifies God. In spite of the immense problems in this church, Paul intends to celebrate what God has done for the church, to give thanks for what God has accomplished for the believers, because it is good and it is right to do that. It would be sinful not to thank God for the good gifts that He gives give you a different example. If someone were to give me a computer for Christmas and I use that computer to look at something I shouldn't be looking at, the problem doesn't lie in the computer. The problem doesn't lie in the person who gave it to me. The problem lies in me. Someone gives me a cell phone and I text while I'm driving and end up getting into an accident hurting or killing somebody. The problem doesn't lie in the phone. The problem doesn't lie in the person who gave me the phone. The problem lies in me. That's what's happening in the Corinthian church. God has enriched them. God has blessed them in every conceivable way. They have all kinds of gifts. They have all the graces. They have all the blessings. But the Christians in this Corinthian church had taken these good things for granted. They had sinfully abused and misused them. But in spite of all of this, God is still to be thanked. He is still to be worshipped. He's still to be praised for what He has done. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Moving along, the third activity Paul gives thanks for here in our text is God's confirming work, which according to verse 6 is something that God has already accomplished in the past, and according to verse 8, something that God is yet to accomplish in the future. 
Same Greek verb translated confirm in our English Bibles is used twice by the Apostle Paul in verse 6 and in verse 8, but it's used once in verse 6 with the aorist tense to denote a past activity and once in verse 8 in the future tense to denote a future activity that has not yet occurred from our human vantage point. When Paul speaks in verse 6 about the testimony of Christ being confirmed in the past, he is speaking about the gospel message being proven true and accurate through the transformation of these pagan Corinthians. As an evangelist, as a preacher of the gospel, Paul had done his part by proclaiming the gospel of God's saving grace through Christ. He had done his part by calling both Jews and Gentiles to repent and believe. But as Paul faithfully did his part in proclaiming the truth, God worked the miracle of regeneration we talked about a few weeks ago, speaking into the dark, formless human heart, creating spiritual life where there was once only death and desolation and darkness. Remember 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the context of this letter, God had accomplished the miracle of conversion in the Corinthians. He had raised them up from spiritual death to spiritual life. He had enriched them with spiritual gifts so that they were lacking in nothing. This is the confirming work that Paul is talking about in verse 6. He's speaking about the genuine proof of conversion, which is a transformed life marked by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me remind us this morning that spiritual rebirth is far more than intellectual, or I should say mere intellectual assent to certain facts about Jesus' life and death and resurrection because even the devil himself believes the right things about Jesus. Genuine conversion, genuine rebirth is a miracle of God's sovereign grace that happens when He touches your dead and lifeless heart and gives you a new heart which is alive in Jesus Christ. Genuine Christian conversion goes far beyond mere intellectual assent to the truth and requires a transformed life and a transformed heart. The truth is, if you have been truly born again by the Spirit of God, there will be evidence in your life to confirm it. A few years ago when we went through the epistles of John near the end of the New Testament, we talked a lot about the confirming evidences of true saving faith. For example, a genuine self-sacrificial love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. A striving to follow after God's commandments even though we still do so imperfectly. A love for sound doctrine as we find it revealed in the Word of God. A faith that perseveres even though it's sometimes battered and beaten down. Genuine Christianity, brothers and sisters, is confirmed by evidence, proof that the Holy Spirit lives within you. That's why later on in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul will tell the believers in this church to examine themselves to see whether they are truly in the faith, to determine whether the confirming signs of God's presence and power are truly present in their lives. It's amazing here in chapter 1 is that even though this church in Corinth is plagued by many problems, many deficiencies, many sins, the confirming evidence of God's saving work is there. Lives have been transformed in the city of Corinth. Spiritual gifts have been received so that the believers in this church are not lacking in anything. These Christians have been richly endowed by the Holy Spirit. The evidence of God's gracious work among them is evident to the Apostle. 
Now, to be sure, he is not pleased with all of their behavior, but neither is he denying that a genuine work of grace has been accomplished among them. True conversion is confirmed by evidence of the Spirit's activity. That is the message of verses 6 and 7. But in verse 8, Paul goes even further than this, and he speaks about a confirming work that still lies in the future and will not take place until the Lord Jesus returns. And he says, Jesus will sustain you, or really in the Greek, will confirm you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here ought to be a tremendous comfort and encouragement to all of us as I'm sure it was to the Corinthians long ago. Because Paul is saying here in effect that the work God began in you at the time of your conversion will one day be completed on that day when you stand before His judgment throne and see Him face to face. There will be a future confirmation on the day of the Lord as there's already been a past confirmation through your transformed heart and life. This, brothers and sisters, is the same wonderful truth we find in Philippians 1, verse 6. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion till the day of Jesus Christ. That's why we teach here at Rosedale Baptist, a true Christian can never lose his salvation. It's a doctrine that we sometimes call the perseverance of the saints. See, friends, the ultimate confirming mark of genuine Christianity is final perseverance. Perseverance to the end. A faith in Christ that is never snuffed out, never stamped out, no matter what we may go through, no matter what events may come our way for good or for evil. And that's not to say, by the way, that we'll never go through times of doubt or times of disobedience or times of rebellion, because if that were the case, Paul could never say something like this to the church in Corinth. True Christians, as we all know, we've all experienced, sometimes disobey and rebel and backslide and fall into destructive patterns of sin. But the point remains. If God has done a genuine converting work in your heart through the Holy Spirit, He will carry that work to completion. He will enable you to persevere in faith and to keep moving forward. And if along the pathway of life you stumble off the road and fall into the ditch, God will not abandon you there. He will give you the grace you need to get back up, to get back on the road, and to keep moving forward. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but for me, this is probably the most encouraging, the most uplifting truth that comes out of this passage. The truth that God isn't done with me. The truth that God remains faithful to me, even in those times when I'm unfaithful to Him. One day when we reach the end of that road and we see the Savior face to face, God will confirm the reality of our faith. He will once for all do it and He will say, well done. And I for one am looking forward to that day of consummation. But in the meantime, as we wait for that great day of confirmation, we Christians can still say and we can still sing with confidence, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand till He returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. God in His grace has already confirmed the truth of the Gospel through transformed hearts and lives, and one day He will confirm our eternal salvation when we stand before Him clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
The bottom line of all Paul has been saying in these introductory verses comes in verse 9. If you have a pen, I would encourage you to underline these three words. God is faithful. That's the point here. It's hard to miss the point if you carefully observe and study all that Paul has been giving thanks for. You and I naturally gravitate towards a man-centered view of the Christian faith where everything is about us. Everything is about our activity, our accomplishments, our obedience, our response. But Paul clearly puts forward in all of his letters a God-centered view, a Christ-centered view of the Christian life. Look carefully at the different verbs we've been studying today in these opening verses. Notice, God is the subject of nearly everyone, and nearly every verb in these verses has been put in the passive form, thereby emphasizing grammatically that God has done it and not us. It is God who sanctified you in Jesus Christ, verse 2. It is God who called you to be a saint, verse 2. It is God who gave you grace and peace, verses 3 and 4. It is God who enriched the church in all speech and knowledge and with every spiritual gift, verse 5. It is God who confirmed the message among you, verse 6. It is God who will confirm you guiltless on the day of Jesus Christ, verse 7. It is God who called you into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, verse 8. Do you see it? Do you get the point? In each and every case, it is God who's initiated and accomplished the action. And that's why Paul is compelled to give thanks for all these things God has done. He is not patting the Corinthians on the back for doing such a great job for being such wonderful people. He's worshiping God. He's acknowledging that God has done these things in and through His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, did you notice... As we read through those verses, how many times Jesus' name is mentioned. The name of Jesus occurs in each and every verse, ten times in total, making this a Christ-centered, Christ-saturated introduction. And that is critically important, brothers and sisters. Because if Christ is not at the center of our faith, if He's not at the center of our doctrine and our teaching and our preaching, we may be religious people, but we're not Christian people. Paul's thinking, Paul's praying, Paul's teaching, Paul's theology is utterly dominated and saturated by Christ. And I hope and I pray that yours is too. A Christ-centered, Christ-saturated faith that puts Christ at the center of all things so that He might receive the glory for salvation and not man. And this brings us then to the final activity of God that Paul mentions in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of His Son. No, we talked about that word call last week. It appears twice in verse 2. It appears a third time in verse 8. It's a very important, a very prominent word in the opening section of 1 Corinthians. And Paul has framed his introductory greeting to the church with teaching about God's sovereign, effectual calling of lost sinners to repentance. In verse 2, he describes the Corinthians as those called to be saints. In verse 9, he repeats precisely the same doctrine, emphasizing these Corinthians have been called by God into the fellowship of His Son by God's grace and through God's initiative. Whenever a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, 
The truth is that there are two calls that occur. And we need to distinguish between these calls so that we don't get confused. On the one hand is the external call of the preacher or the evangelist who shares the truth about Christ from the Word of God and who pleads with the lost sinner to repent and believe the Gospel. By now, I hope you know, this happens almost every Sunday right here in this auditorium as I teach from God's Word and then call on you to respond to the Word by repenting of sin and by embracing Jesus as Lord. This is what we call the external call of the Gospel. It's the outward call of the Gospel that comes from a man or a woman who shares the good news of God's salvation in Christ. And I hope and pray that many of you are extending the external call of the Gospel to non-believers that God has placed in your life, in your sphere of influence. Let me emphasize here this morning, this is not the call that Paul is talking about here in verse 2, verse 8. You see, there is another call that must happen in order for a person to be saved from their sins. It's what we sometimes refer to as the internal call or the effectual call of God's Holy Spirit. The external call of the gospel happens when a Christian pleads with the sinner to repent of sin, to embrace Jesus Christ. But the internal, the effectual call happens when the Holy Spirit enables the person to believe the truth about Christ and to embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. And the call that Paul is speaking about here in verse 2 and verse 8 is the second call. The silent call that comes not from the preacher, but from the Holy Spirit, speaking to the heart of the non-believer, convicting that person of their sin, their need for righteousness, the reality of the judgment that is yet to come. And as the Bible teaches, all those whom God has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world will be effectually called by the Holy Spirit so that they will willingly and joyfully come to saving faith in Christ Jesus and entrust their lives and their eternity to Him. That, friends, is the call that Paul is referring to in these verses. He is talking about the internal, irresistible call of the Holy Spirit that breaks through the hardened, sinful heart, enabling the person to see the beauty of Christ, liberating the enslaved will to embrace Christ as Savior and to proclaim that He indeed is Lord. Brothers and sisters, you and I are called as Christians to proclaim the glorious gospel of Christ to all people. Our job is to call on all people to repent of their sin, to believe in Jesus Christ. Our job is to preach the gospel to every creature without discrimination or hesitation. And as we are faithful to do that task of evangelism, we can be absolutely confident that the Holy Spirit is doing His work too. The Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of His sheep He is calling them to saving faith in Christ so that one day He might confirm that calling by not losing any that the Father has given to Him and by presenting each and every one of them faultless and guiltless by virtue of their union and their communion with Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, Bonnie introduced a new song written by Keith and Kristen Getty. I was meditating on the words of that song this week and I think those words beautifully summarize the truths that we've been considering today, the truths that Paul thanked God for so many years ago. Listen to these words. God of grace, amazing wonder, irresistible and free. Oh, the miracle of mercy Jesus reaches down to me. God of grace, I stand in wonder as my God restores my soul. His own blood has paid my ransom, awesome cost to make me whole. 
God of grace who loved and knew me long before the world began. Sent my Savior down from heaven, perfect God and perfect man. God of grace, I trust in Jesus. I'm accepted as His own. Every day His grace sustains me as I lean on Him alone. God of grace, I stand astounded, cleansed, forgiven, and secure. All my fears are now confounded and my hope is ever sure. God of grace, now crowned in glory, where one day I'll see your face and forever I'll adore you in your everlasting grace. Amen.